I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. To me, the thing I always notice first is the colors. You know, on certain days, if it's a cloudless sky, the ocean is this incredibly dark blue, almost like a sapphire. And that's Diane Cardwell, standing on the beach at Rockaway in February of 2021. FYI, it was still coronavirus winter in New York at the time, so double masks. The sound's a little bit muffled. I don't know what it is about a beach in winter. But there's something that I find truly magical. I mean, there's just something so incongruous about snow on the beach. But I think that's only because that's not how we are used to using it. It's like, it's always here, right? So. It's comforting, isn't it? To think that the beach and the ocean are always there. Diane is a writer. And she started spending a lot of time at Rockaway after what you might call a midlife crisis. She had just gone through a divorce and dealing with fears that she would never be happy again. But long story short, she discovered surfing. And I was terrible, just terrible. Still, I'm not very good. But I loved it. I, like, I managed to get to my feet for just a few seconds, and I just was so in love with that feeling, you know, just gliding across the water as if you're some kind of magical creature, right? Like the board sort of disappears and you become part of the ocean and part of this kind of cosmic force that is energy in water making waves. Diane fell so in love with surfing that she ended up moving to Rockaway and in 2020 published a memoir titled Rockaway, Surfing Headlong into a New Life. Rockaway, by the way, is in Queens, on a peninsula at the western edge of Long Island. And it's famously a surf town. People come in from Brooklyn or the city for the day to surf, hang out, watch the waves. And there's also a solid, local, year-round community. All that on a spit of sand on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. A very tenuous spit of sand. 
just how tenuous, came into sharp relief just a few months after Diane moved in, as she told our producer, Justine Paradise. So I had moved here about six months before the storm hit, and I had spent a lot of time and effort and energy and money renovating my little crazy bungalow to be this kind of single woman recovery house. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> Make some it of those. kind of right. It's like I was post divorce. I was making a new life. This was like establishing my beachhead, so to speak. And um, and so it was all sort of perfect and lovely. And I was learning to surf. And then um, the storm hit. October of 2012, Hurricane Sandy. Diane had decided to defy the evacuation order. A lot of her neighbors weren't leaving either, and she thought she'd be okay. I had some tuna fish and some whiskey and extra water. <laughs> a complicated short wave radio I couldn't really figure out how to use. The tuna fish whiskey plan is just excellent. <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter and crackers. But then, at some point in the night... Well, first I heard shouting outside my window, and I looked out, and I saw that the water. The ocean was essentially flowing down my street. I just panicked and literally like saw the water rising up and I suddenly understood what people were talking about. I'd seen on the news saying the water just came up so fast. And so I just thought, I can't be here alone. I got myself together hastily um, and I actually went out into it. What I was trying to do was get to my friend, a friend's house. Um, and when I got out into the water, I was just like, I'm not going to make it. There's just no way. And I thought I could die out here. It almost felt electric. It was just, I had never felt so, like you could feel the energy that was in the water because the ocean was coming onto the block, right? And so I heard a friend across the street, I heard my name kind of, drifting ghostly over the roar and I thought am I making that my name and I looked across the street and my neighbor and friend Kiva was out there saying Diane Diane hold on hold on and she came back with a pole and I sort of walked into the middle of the street you know bracing myself and then suddenly I sort of noticed motion a different motion on the side and there's a garbage can hurtling towards my head and she's like watch out and then the this is still the most insane thing to me i had been working out with a trainer twice a week to try to get strong enough for surfing and he, i heard his voice in my head saying use your core <laughs> so so, you know, I sort of like tightened up my core and I was like, okay, I only have two steps and I'll make it over there. And then I came, I went upstairs and um, spent the night there. But um, about, I don't know, maybe an hour later, we were sitting in her living room. She'd given me pants to put on and the whole thing. And um, suddenly we hear like a crash of like metal scraping on asphalt and car alarms going off. And then all of a sudden, a guy standing behind me says, goes, dude, that's the boardwalk. And it was. The boardwalk had 
basically been ripped up off of its concrete supports and came like javelined down our block. Like crushing cars. And that's when I was just, I just felt like, oh my God, anything could happen. But the real reason you're hearing this story is what Diane saw the next day. Um, and the next morning, basically the beach was on our block, right? We had piles and piles of sand. It was almost like hills and valleys and rivulets. And then the, these weird half block long sections of the boardwalk, which were still entirely intact, right? I mean, they were bent and twisted and weird, but they had, there was a bench and a street and a lamppost. And I mean, it was just cray cray, but there really like nothing could have prepared me for what I saw when I got to the beach itself. Like all the sand and all the sand had been hollowed out sand everywhere where it shouldn't be, (laughs) no sand where it should be. It was something else. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and today we've got another in our occasional 10 by 10 series, The Sand Beach. When Diane Cardwell walked out of her friend's house after Hurricane Sandy at Rockaway Beach, she saw a display of how a sand beach can respond to a storm. The beach moved. But even in the quietest of times, beaches, and specifically sand beaches, are defined by movement and change. I think it's fair to say that the beach is one of the most flexible or dynamic, if you will, habitats in the world. It's super geologically unstable. The beach essentially is constantly changing. It's either accreting or building up or eroding. So today, a look at how beaches move, the systems and feedback loops on and around the sand beach, the science taking place there, and how the way beaches are changing is itself changing in a changing world. Did I say change enough times? Here's producer Justine Paradise. In the ice-free world, just over 30% of shorelines are sandy. The sand is basically just soil of a particular size. This is Danya Frank Gilchrist. She's a research oceanographer and a coastal engineer. That's how we categorize different types of soils or sediments, is by um, the size of their diameter. So sand can be as fine as flour that you cook with every day, or as coarse as a grain of salt. And then anything smaller than flour would be classified as silt, and anything larger than that pinhead would be classified as as gravel. Sand is a type of soil particle. To cut to the chase, it's basically very small rocks. Danya currently contracts with the U.S. Geologic Survey, St. Petersburg Coastal and Marine Science Center in St. Petersburg, Florida. In her career, she has studied different types of movement, from individual sand grains to how oil and sand mix together and interact, and for the Navy, the underwater movement of objects like, say, unexploded munitions. But I kind of had a basic question for her, which I think she maybe thought was a little amusing. Why is all the sand on the beach? Like, what? how does it get there? Like, why is it sand? Okay. Um, <laughs> why is it sand? Okay. So there's a couple reasons. 
One is that rivers are a big source of sand. The currents pick up and carry rocks to the coast. And as they go, they'll wear them down until they're sand-sized. But also, on geologic timescales, sand actually forms at the coast. Um, in addition to just the wave action and wind and other weather forces breaking down the rocks and eroding them into smaller pieces. Second reason that sand is at the beach is what it's made of. The composition of sand can vary a lot depending on the location. So in Hawaii, black sand beaches are formed from broken down lava. In many places, the sand contains a lot of coral. For instance, in the Caribbean, I think in Barbuda, they actually have pink sand. On Okinawa, off Japan, the beaches have star-shaped sand, which are actually the tiny shells of a single-celled organism called foraminifera. In some regions, sand also comes from the poop of parrotfish that eat algae from ocean rocks and, and coral reef. But overwhelmingly, the world over, sand is mostly made of quartz, the second most abundant mineral in Earth's crust, made of silica and oxygen. And this is a big reason why sand is at the beach, is because quartz is a relatively stable and pretty hard mineral. So quartz sand is basically what remains after everything else is blown or washed away. These days, Danya is applying her research of how sand moves at a small scale, literally down to the grain, to a larger scale, like how sand moves on beaches and barrier islands. And to talk more about that, about how sand moves on the beach level, let me also introduce Larry Ward. He's a research associate professor with the University of New Hampshire Center for Coastal and Ocean Mapping. He specializes in geologic oceanography and beach processes and morphology, which basically means... Features. Berms, uh, sandbars, tidal inlets. Uh, it's about the landscape and the, the forms that it takes. And measuring how a beach changes is hard because... And here's one of my very favorite things about beaches, and therefore one of my favorite things about the world, is that basically by definition, a beach is always changing. The beach essentially is constantly changing. It's either accreting or building up or eroding. So a beach doesn't actually stop at the waterline. In fact, if you were to try to pinpoint the boundary of the beach, well, I would say that the shape of the boundary is less a line and more of a kind of pixelated cloud ripples and spools of sand swirling in the water and the wind. And the location of that swirling, pixelated edge, it's constantly moving. The beach has two classic profiles. I'm calling it the winter and summer beach, but Larry told me that technically you'd call them erosional versus accretional. So as for an accretional beach, basically think about a classically ideal sunny day in August on the beach in New England. The beach is nice and wide. You pick a nice sunny spot a little way back from the waves to pitch your umbrella. Here you're on the upper beach. The upper beach, uh, the back shore, the uh, place where you tend to put your blankets, would have a higher elevation. And once you're ready for a swim, you can head down to the water. And then some sort of slope down to what we call the low tide terrace. And indeed, you're heading down a slope to the water. There's a big berm just before you reach the swash zone where waves are breaking against the shore. This berm is like a sand savings account. In my terminology, this is the classic summer beach. Lots of sand up on the shore. But then, as often happens in winter, a storm rolls in. So if you have a storm come, up, come by, a northeast storm with a, or something creating large waves or something that generates the energy of the waves, the waves get bigger, and they're resuspending the sediment. They're throwing the sand up in the air. 
The waves eat into the sand savings account, that summer berm. And the wind picks up the sand too, and all of this re-sculpts the beach to the erosional profile, the winter beach. Flatter, narrower, um, the upper beach isn't built as high. And even the composition of the beach itself changes. The finer sand grains get carried away, some by wind, some by sea. And you get pebbles uh, and coarse material lagging behind. This sand, churned up and suspended in the water column, drifts down the beach and offshore. But it doesn't disappear. Eventually, it does sink, often forming a sandbar. As powerful waves continue to move into shore, they break against that sandbar before they get to the beach. So some of that powerful energy gets dissipated, mitigating the force of those eroding waves. So it's like by being in motion, by being flexible, the beach has a self-protective mechanism built into its basic structure. And then eventually, the season of storms ends. And the beach starts to rebuild. Gentler waves start to push the sand landward. If you laid in the surf zone and felt a wave go over, you kind of like rock forward a little bit with the wave direction. It kind of pushes sand. And eventually, it'll create sandbars, grain by grain, that pushes the sand back up on the beach. And then another one comes in, and then another, and the beach builds up. Given long enough, it recovers. But that's key given long enough. If it doesn't have time, then it doesn't recover. This ability, this storm buffering capacity, is um, you know, really one of our, our first defenses against storms and, and increasing storms and severity of storms with climate change and rising seas. This is Alison Eberhardt, Coastal Ecosystems Specialist with New Hampshire Sea Grant and the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. Together, she and Larry help run a community science project with New Hampshire Sea Grant, in which 35 volunteers are trained to measure the beach profiles we just heard about on 13 different beaches on New Hampshire's sea coast. Hey and this winter, I met Allison at one of them, Seabrook Beach, to see this community science project in action. That day, it was a group of three volunteers, plus me and Allison and her colleague, Wells Costello. The volunteers go out every month at the lunar low tide, and also sometimes before and after significant storms. And they've been doing this for the past five years, to try to understand both how beaches are responding to storms, and to get a broader sense of the trend line. And they're moving very fast. They're, they're very experienced. <laughs> yes, I know. They're using a technique called the Emery method, which Allison said is also known as two sticks and a string measuring the elevation of the beach from the dunes to the low tide terrace. looking vertically and finding where it lines up with the horizon, establishing a straight line and getting a reading off of the poles, an elevation reading. Would they be out here even if it was like sleeting and stuff on this? They've been out here literally with gale force winds, with like in 10 degree weather, I mean, they'll th weather wise, they come out in anything. It's only the horizon that is the deal breaker. Wow. Let's take this opportunity to look more carefully at the shape of the beach, starting at the waterline. Again, that day it was the lunar low tide, one of two monthly moments when the moon and the sun are aligned, plus the moon is closest to the earth in its orbit. So there's more of a gravitational pull dragging the tides in and out. 
So basically, it's the highest high tides and the lowest low tides of the month. So that day, the inner tidal zone was very visible. A long, low, flat, wet stretch of sand. Solid enough to walk on, but wet enough that you might find puddles and you want to move quickly so that your shoes don't get too soaked. Allison, do you know what these little bubbles are here? Right at the edge of the water, there's a little lip, also known as the beach step, where at high tide, waves would be washing against the beach. And here we came across little holes in the sand. I mean, there's burrowing clams and crustaceans. Look, there's one with the little bubbles coming up there. Sand fleas or mole crabs can also live at the water's edge. You'll often see piping plovers or other shorebirds foraging here, darting in and out of the wave's edge. It was December, and as we moved away from the water, we were walking up a flat, gradual profile, aka what I call a winter beach, no berm. And eventually, you can see the extent of the last high tide here. We came to the rack line, basically the stuff that gathers at the high tide mark. That day, we saw grasses and algae. There's, um, this is probably Spartina alterniflora, which is our um, salt marsh cord grass, one of the main plants in our New England salt marshes. And then certainly some, some beach grass in here too. So you might find seaweed, jellyfish, dead birds, crab shells. While we were walking, Allison also found a long, narrow clam shell. And all others, this is a razor clam. My daughter calls these sea hot dogs. <laughs> that she calls sea hot dogs. Plus, you might find human trash, helium balloons, fishing gear, plastic, plus flotsam and jetsam, which are actually specific terms referring to trash thrown off of ships. Flotsam being not deliberate, jetsam being on purpose, like jettison. The rack line is pretty important for a few reasons. In a lot of ways, the beach is rather desert-like. It's got very little shade, lots of exposure to wind and salt and UV rays, big temperature swings, very little fresh water. But the rack line provides shelter and habitat to invertebrates like sand fleas, predators like spiders. But this is exactly the stuff that, so piping plovers nest on this beach, um, which are a protected species. And so in the, the late spring and early summer, this is exactly where they like to feed. Another thing about objects in the rack line is that they can catch sand. Grains that are caught in the wind, skipping along the surface of the beach, hit the rack line and gather. Basically, any obstruction is important because it could start to help form dunes. Dunes. Dunes are one of the most important parts of a beach, and in fact, it's high time we got here. Because talking about a beach without talking about a dune is maybe like talking about a tree without talking about its roots. The dunes are exceptionally pretty different times of the year. In the fall, that's when you get the goldenrod budding bright yellow and you'll see lots of butterflies. In early summer is when you'll see the beach pea. And, you know, end of the summer is when you'll, you'll see those beach plums. And if we're talking about dunes, who better to call than Bianca Charbonneau, or I guess Dr. Bianca Charbonneau. I'm also known as the dune goon. The dune goon. Bianca's roommate gave her that nickname when she was getting her master's. But more specifically, Bianca is a coastal ecologist. And I specialize in how plants respond to and recover from storms. So what's a dune beyond a pile of sand? A developed dune system has a classic topography. So there's ridges in this system. The ridge closest to the ocean is called the foredune, the most exposed and stressful environment. Behind it, there's a little valley called the interdune, and then behind that, another ridge, 
aka the secondary dune or back dune. There are a few different plants that can live in the dune, but in the mid-Atlantic region, dunes are characterized by one in particular. Uh, American beach grass is Amophila brevilligulata. 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 <laughs> it's a mouthful. American beach grass. Bianca told me that globally, there are only a handful of plants that can really withstand the extreme environment of the dune. And not only can it withstand the extreme environment, but beachgrass also helps create dunes. These four dunes are built up over time by the plants, but the habitat itself selects what plants can actually survive there. And so there's this unique feedback between the plants or the ecology of the system and the geological processes. Here's that feedback loop. This windblown sand is uh, approaching a plant, it hits the plant, it falls to its base, and it accumulates over time. Grain by grain. And then the plants themselves, their roots, are producing different materials that can help bind the individual grains into clumps or aggregates of sand, and that's going to give the system more stability as well. And these individual mounds are a fun word called a nebka. Nebka. That's actually an Arabic word for small sandy hillock. They're basically sand dunes that form around vegetation. And they range in size from anywhere from a couple centimeters to meters in size. Nebka can encroach on other nebka, start catching more grains of sand, changing the flow pattern, catching more sand. And over time, we think about seven years, um, you will get a dune that forms. And when I, what I'm talking about there is a continuous ridge. So a dune is a kind of habitat that's called bio or eco-geomorphic as in places where the organisms contribute to shaping the landscape. And so by virtue of its growing conditions that it helped create, beach grass has to be able to handle getting buried. And so they actually, not only do they tolerate being buried, but they actually increase their vigor or their growth as a function of being buried. Instead of uh, folding under pressure, if you will, you know, they rise to the occasion and they grow taller and faster to get out of that burial. And one reason that American beach grass is able to survive sand burial is that it spreads clonally. If you look at one plant, it's going to look like there's a ton of stems. But if you were to dig, and you shouldn't dig, um, they actually come together underground to one central point. What might appear to be individual grasses can actually be connected. Yeah, they can pass water back and forth, as well as nutrients. But the thing that beach grass really can't handle is being walked on. You might not feel it, but there's a good chance if you're walking on the dune, you are breaking them. The actual roots of the plants themselves are also sand-colored and very fine. Sometimes they're thicker, um, but they also have a lot of fine roots, and these, are, these can break without you knowing at all. Meanwhile, the dune is also a habitat and wildlife corridor. You might see hawks and snowy owls. Voles, moles, um, even, you know, skunks, raccoons, fox. We definitely see a lot of rabbit pellets, um, just generally and right where we're standing. <laughs> I mean, now that you, I'm seeing it. The farther you get back from the ocean, the more that can survive there because the environment gets less extreme. By the time you get to the back dune, you might start to see shrubs like northern bayberry, wax myrtle, beach plum. And eventually the dunes might transition into a maritime forest, like at Seabrook, the beach that Allison, Wells, and the community science volunteers were profiling that day. Um, just right here on the other side of 1A, where you see trees and shrubs, that's all maritime forest. That's our only example. But the thing about maritime forests is they're under threat. And this particular maritime forest is, in fact, 
the only one left in New Hampshire. Because, of course, humans are involved too. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's coming up after the break. A few years ago, Danya Frank Gilchrist went on vacation with her family. Okay, I'll try not to name the hotel, <laughs> but it was a very, it was a very nice, fancy hotel in Florida, and my family and I were really looking forward to relaxing by the beach and enjoying that um, vacation. It was somewhere between late winter, early spring, pre-tourist season. And when we got there, we saw the sign up, and there were bulldozers and tractors and like all of this huge construction equipment that you don't typically expect to see at a beach. <laughs> What Danya was witnessing was a beach nourishment project in which sand is trucked in to build up a beach or replace sand that might have been lost. And remember, Danya is a research oceanographer and coastal engineer, so she was kind of into it. It was interesting, though, to see it in action because as a scientist, I study it all the time. Kind of. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't get to go out to the, the beach as often as I'd like. Sand replenishment, generally speaking, is the kind of intervention that becomes necessary to maintain the existence of a beach when the overlapping systems that once supported and in fact created the beach are no longer intact. Let me back up. Many of the scientists I spoke to referred to the idea that a resilient beach needs a sediment source, a sand supply. Sand takes millions of years to form. It's not unlimited. And you can't really control it. The sand will, may get eroded eventually. And so every few years, they'll have to um, go back and spend those millions of dollars again to re-nourish that beach if it's, you know, really worth it to them when they look at their, you know, cost-benefit analysis, um, which I guess it is because they, they keep doing it and um, the tourists bring in a whole lot more money than the cost of the nourishment. That sand material is an incredibly valuable and, frankly, rare resource. That's Allison Everhart again with the New Hampshire Sea Grant and UNH Cooperative Extension. From our data, we know um, many of our beaches are sand-starved. And so when we have this valuable resource, you want to um, put it to beneficial use. So what leads some beaches to need sand replenishment? Well, we've just walked with Allison on a mostly intact beach system, from the ocean to the dune, stopping at the rack line. But that beach landscape is often reshaped by people who have different ideas about what it's for and what it should look like. For instance, the rack line is an important forage site, 
and a feature of the beach that helps prevent erosion. It is also a pile of seaweed and decomposing animal carcasses. It can smell. So sometimes people remove it. And as far as the dune, in a lot of towns right on the coast, it doesn't exist at all. After visiting Seabrook, that beach with the wide intertidal zone and the dune system and maritime forest, Allison and I darted 10 minutes up the road to another beach she's profiling, North Beach, which is along a part of the coast with a classic boardwalk vibe. Pizza joints, ice cream stands, arcades, beachy cottages facing the waves, and a seawall. These beaches, um, there's not there's not much space at high tide. There's not much beach available for for putting your your blanket down or your chair. Um, so these are mostly used at at low tide, uh, and that's because there's they're just much narrower beaches and have a lot less um, a lot less sand. There's a few reasons why this beach is narrower, like the shape of the coastline, for instance. But you can hear one of those reasons. The road is right there, running north-south parallel to the ocean, right where the dune used to be, one of the systems that helps sustain the beach. So what happens on a beach without a dune? But what we do know is that sand dunes are a really important source of sand storage. And so they can serve to help replenish the beaches and just keep a, a high supply of sand in the system. And we don't have that here, where there are seawalls. And when there's no dune, the way that a beach erodes and responds to storms is very different. Here's Bianca Charbonneau again, a.k.a. the Dune Goon. She told me that, first of all, the wider the dune, the more waves it can potentially withstand. Because you can think of the dune kind of like an onion, where a wave is hitting and it's absorbing the destructive power of that wave by sloughing off a layer of sand. And again, that sand is aggregated or clumped and stabilized by the roots. The roots are kind of acting also, you can think of like a spider net, um, so that they're not just free. It's not just a free for all loose sand in there. You know, it's, it's held together in some way. And so individual layers of sand are being pulled away with each wave. And so the dune is in theory getting thinner and thinner and thinner as that onion or that dune, you know, erodes. Compare that to when a wave hits a hard seawall. It's hitting that hard wall and it has nowhere to go. And so it's turning underneath itself and kind of creating creating a very turbulent eddy or basically a washing machine effect right at the base of that sand wall so that you're getting accelerated erosion right at the base of that seawall as well as as the water is pulled out back to the ocean. Not all seawalls are created equal, but the bottom line is seawalls are intended to protect what's behind them. They are not intended to protect the beach. In December 2020, ProPublica and the Honolulu Star Advisor published an article on seawalls in Hawaii. It was headlined, Hawaii's beaches are disappearing. And it laid out how, even though Hawaii has a no-tolerance policy for new seawalls, local officials granted exceptions to this policy to 230 homeowners and hotels, allowing them to keep or install seawalls and sandbags in front of their structures. Others were even built without any approval at all. And many of those beaches in front of those seawalls are gone. So not only does this mean that sometimes public beaches and space is lost, but it also means that the mechanism, the movement of sand which can protect the beach, no longer exists. 
It might be possible, though, to protect seaside communities in a way that doesn't wash away the beach. A hybrid between the rigidity of a seawall and the responsiveness of the dune. In fact, everyone I spoke to told me that in recent decades, within coastal management, there's been a general movement toward living shorelines, some of which can still include beach nourishment as an element. Living shorelines, which are these hybrid approaches where you're, you may have a structural element. Sometimes it's rocks or trees or geotubes combined with elements from nature. So plantings or nooks and crannies that can serve as habitat um, rather than like a poured concrete wall. But as Bianca said earlier, it takes about seven years to see a really established dune. And one thing that might point to is that Living shorelines can take time and space. I'm all for plants. You just got to be patient because they take a lot longer. That's part of the problem is I think that, uh, you know, a wall, like a seawall, offers immediate comfort and it's rigid versus a plant which, you know, will support the habitat over time and is more of a long-term investment, but also takes time to build up that habitat and you don't know what's coming at you. We don't really know what's coming at us. Even in places where it's possible to build something like a restored dune, there is still the challenge of sea level rise and bigger, more frequent, and more intense storms. Storms like Hurricane Sandy, where the surge pushed the groundwater level up from below, while powerful waves tore at the shore from above. During Hurricane Sandy, the Army Corps of Engineers estimated that more than 1.5 million tons of sand were, quote, torn from Rockaway Beach. So I would say this is the kind of day, this, so he's looking, see that there's a shadow forming on the horizon, that's a wave, and he's actually in... Rockaway, we're here, Diane Cardwell is standing, looking at the ocean as the surfer paddles out. Oh, he's going, paddle, 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 go, 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 there, double paddle, in it, but it's gonna... After Sandy, it took a little while for Diane to get back in the water. First of all, she said surfing didn't really feel right while people's basements were filled with mud. Plus, a couple local sewage treatment plants had flooded, and it wasn't really even safe to go surfing. And by the time she did get back in the water, it wasn't just the beach that had shifted. The waves had changed, too. You know, it's a beach break, so most of the waves, not all of them, but most of the waves are made by sandbars. And those just shift with the way the water moves things around. And so most waves in Rockaway are lefts, meaning that you ride them to the left. But there was an, I remember a lot of people very excited that this, that this right seemed to have emerged somewhere (laughs) in the middle, Um, because depending on which way you like to surf with either your left or your right foot forward, one direction is just easier and more comfortable. So that's really the only big difference that I <laughs> that I remember. It's like, oh, dude, did you see that right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> In the years after Sandy, Rockaway has been fortified with a combination of hard structures like groins and seawalls and living shoreline approaches, reconstructed dunes with planted grass, and huge quantities of sand dumped onto the beach and even into the ocean. And that just killed the wave. So for like an entire season... There was no wave to be had. And so I ended up going, you know, to a much farther break, which was kind of the old school where all the old timers used to 
used to go and hang out. But... I notice you're not like sharing the location. Is that like <laughs> you don't want it to be crowded? Uh, that yeah, I I I think I'll <laughs> I, I won't say. <laughs> I, you know, no one's run me out of town yet for having written a book, and so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna keep that up. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of Outside In was produced by Justine Paradise with help from Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Dr. Megan Wengrove, Daniel Helbert, and Jen Poyant. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Mm-hmm.